happy place. One, two, three, four, five. And count to five, it's pretty good to be alive. That it's great to be alive. When you play in records with John. Hey, all you lucky listeners out there in earbud land, and welcome to another exciting episode of Playing Records with John on the FYIZ podcast feed. I'm John, and this is part two of my conversation with the super talented Maria Taylor. I would love it if you just subscribed to FYIZ and your favorite podcatcher and scrolled up a little bit to find the episode called Maria Taylor's Not Gonna Stop. Um, but since I can't count on you to do that, you might be too excited, you want to listen to this one, I'll just set you up by saying that last time Maria and I talked about her beginnings in Birmingham, Alabama, her uh, longtime friendship and partnership with uh, Arinda Fink, and uh, the formation of their band Little Red Rocket. And then when that band ended, we went into their continued existence as a, as a musical duo under the name Azure Ray. And when we left off, Maria had just started to kind of feel the itch uh, to uh, stretch out and create the work that would become her first solo record, 1111. I really do think that's all you need to know. This is a great conversation. If you haven't heard Maria's music, you're in for a treat. If you have, you're still in for a treat because she uh, she tells tales. And with that, here's Maria. There's no My dad was a church organist, so I heard classical music, and he was a classical music buff. And there were Beatles records as well. I guess most, that'd be like saying there was oxygen. My parents had Beatles records. <laughs> if you were growing up in the 70s and 80s, your parents yeah. probably had Beatles records. But I think there's a difference between Beatles records and a musician dad or musician parents where they're they're sort of pointing out to you there's something special about this music. Like there's pop music and there's what's on the radio. And my mom was definitely much more like... We're listening to the radio. So, you know, I think of like my Kenny Rogers greatest hits album and my Tom Jones greatest hits albums. Those are albums that I associate with my mom or with my dad. Same. It was like the Beatles and he had all the records. And so there was a point where I knew all the songs as a kid. And then when I got older and got into music more seriously, I was listening to, you know, at that time, it seemed like the Beatles had deep cuts. I don't know if that's really true anymore. <laughs> um, but at the time, it really was like, wow, certain songs that became my favorite Beatles songs, like you listen to Rubber Soul and you hear Drive My Car, but you also hear I'm Looking Through You and you go, wow, well, this might be my favorite song ever, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that influence of the classical music and the Beatles being around at the same time, I do think it lends itself to a certain appreciation and maybe to see the line between those two things, that there is this sort of... I don't know, melody is just the drug for me, you know? <clears throat> yeah, totally. And that I was the same exact with my dad was, you know, the Beatles and the Tom Waits. And, and then my mom also, we were just, you know, we would listen to what was on the radio on the way to school and back. And, and so we were, my mom and I would just be belting out, you know, um, Whitney Houston and Carly Simon and Kenny Loggins and just you know, all those songs that came on the radio. And that was definitely... Because I also, I mean, I love, I love pop songs like that too. You know, I guess, yeah, when I think of Beatles pop songs and Whitney Houston pop songs, I think of two completely separate things, but I guess you could call them both pop songs. I don't even know if anything exists right now that is like Top 40 was back then, where you're kind of uh, stuck with it. And it's Uh like, this is what's popular. I think now you could 
especially if you're a young person who's, who's, who's really digging into the music that they like, you could through Spotify or Apple music or, or even YouTube, you could, um, totally avoid ever listening to a song that you're not interested in or mm-hmm. that doesn't fit into a style of music that you consider yourself interested in. Whereas back then you'd listen to top 40 and you would hear a kind of countryish song, a kind of R and B ish song, a, a straight up synth pop song, um, uh, a rock and roll song, you know, and it would sort of make you go, well, I guess I, I, I kind of hear the value of all of this in a way, or at least I hear how one, of these genres is no better than another. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't think of myself as someone who who has a hated genre or a forbidden genre. I feel I'm the same way. I feel like my records reflect that too. I feel like, you know, I have sort of a country-ish sounding song next to a really, like a lullaby sounding song next to a drum machine pop song, um, except for this last record, which I feel like I didn't do that for the first time ever. But usually I feel like I do just kind of, it's a bunch of, different genres all piled together. And I think it's probably for the same reason. Like I just, you know, I would, I would call in the radio station to play my favorite song and I would just sit there for 45 minutes, like enjoying every single song until it got to that one. So I could press record on the cassette tape and, mm-hmm. and have my own copy of it. <laughs> did you do that? Of course I did. Uh, how else was I going to get a copy of, uh, ain't nothing going to break my stride or, or Ghostbusters. Um, I'll tell you what drove me crazy though would be when I was finally getting the song that I wanted to record and and I was holding my tape player up to the radio and then the DJ would come on and he would talk over the end of the song or over the beginning of the song. Oh God, yeah. So I have my own reasons for for loving it, but tell me a little bit about why you chose uh, the track "Song Beneath the Song" from your first album as the as the track you wanted to talk about. I mean, this was my first solo record, and um, it was it was the song that I knew. Like when I was writing the record, you know, I always know what's going to be the single, like pretty much when I'm writing it, but especially as I'm recording it, you can tell which one just has that like just it's hookier and it's just got that. Je ne sais quoi. You know, you're just like, there's something, this is for whatever reason. It's like everything then goes towards making that song the single. And therefore it probably is a pretty good contender. Right. So then people hear it first and they hear it the most. Yeah. This song has got that hook. That chorus sounds like something you've known your whole life and yet you haven't heard it before. You know, it's just one of those songs. It's my most successful song that I've ever had. You know, it was in, it's just been in a lot of shows and, and I'm proud of that. Like, I know like back in the day, people would be like, oh, it's cheesy if you're songs are in a TV show, but I was just always, I mean, it was just such a cool way because I Shazam things or, you know, I always look up songs and TV shows like all the time. I did it just the other night. Like I, so it's just a great way to get exposure. And I love just when different art forms come together and like, I don't know. An interesting detachment It's not a love, it's not a love, it's not a love song. 
Mike Mogus, who is a friend of mine and an amazing um, producer, he produced it. And back in those days, like we we would bring mattresses into the studio and just sleep there. So we recorded half of that. I recorded half with him and half um, Andy Lamaster produced it. But I don't know. There's just something about like when I think back of that song and that record and think of that mattress in the studio and you know I'm just sleeping with the microphones and the drum sets and all the amplifiers and waking up and just living and breathing the recording of that record. It's just, um, I don't know, like those are those times, like I could never do that again, I never will do that again, and it makes it special to me. Now, 11.11, being your solo debut, was that an album that you sort of decided you were going to make and then you started writing songs towards having an album or or did you choose from a, a ton of demos that you had laying around or uh you know old recordings i'm not that prolific like when i decide i want to write a record um i just i have that in mind and once i get to 10 songs or maybe 11 or maybe nine, like i kind of know when i think it's done but i don't ever have throwaway songs i've never had a throwaway song like if i i throw it away in the writing process and if I finish it, it's going to go on a record. Like, that means I think it's good enough to be on the record. It's blood, sweat, and tears to get 10 for me. But um, but I do, like, I think about before, like, I want to make a record, and I kind of, you know, I want it to sort of be, you know, I have sort of a feel in mind. Um, but it usually comes to life in the studio, and sometimes, like, it's nothing like what I thought. And then, yeah, the different songs lend themselves to different different feelings and then I feel like then I get the grab bag of the country song next to the folk song next to the pop song is it literally just the first 10 good songs that you write that's what becomes an album or or do you ever give yourself a set of parameters to uh to work with or to buck against I don't do that with my solo stuff but for Azure definitely I mean I think that you know working within the parameters helped us define Azure and that's so that's like what differentiates um I feel like my solo work from Azure is the parameters that I'm working with under with Azure. But no, I just kind of like go for it and just whatever happens, happens. <laughs> I mean, and you know, I love mixed tape or mixed tapes. I love mixed mixes. Maria, I was born in 1973. I, I'm a, I'm a mixtape kind of boy. <laughs> okay. Well, mixed, you know, I'm just a mixtape kind of girl. So I feel like that's where also that was sort of my intention when I would put out solo records is like, I can do that. I have the freedom. I'm going to make my own mixtape of like, but my songs and, um, until this last record. And I feel like this is the first time that I didn't, I sort of, um, unintentionally created like more of a vibe and less of a grab bag mixtape. One more thing I'd like to mention about this song is just the fact that, uh, Connor Oberst's voice Sounds really good with your voice. You you are one of those singers who harmonizes beautifully with with uh, yourself, and I love when you multitrack your voice. But it's great to get the grain of a different singer in there, and I think his suits the song and suits your your tone on this song uh, really uh, in a in a really lovely way. Like we were listening to Carly Simon, "You're So Vain," so much right around that time, and so like I was telling Connor because he's singing the backup on that song, and I. I wanted him to be the Mick Jagger. I was like, you just, you know, you got to sing the backup and you're going to be like Mick Jagger. And so that was our joke was that like, that was my, 
I don't know, that was my attempt to have a song like that and for it to have a Mick Jagger character <laughs> <laughs> sing the backup. <laughs> to move on to your next selection, which is a song called Cartoons and Forever Plans, uh, which involved working with Michael Stipe. I have to ask a little bit about what that must be like. I think this song represents, from an arrangement standpoint, a really cool feel. There's some some great percussion on this song. I love that kind of like hitting the side of the snare stuff. I mean, to me, that's just like manna from heaven when an arrangement is is quirky and fun. And I hate to use the word quirky and perhaps the word fun. Maybe you're gagging. <laughs> no, not at all. Quirky is the word you use when you don't know what word to use. I like quirky and I love the word fun. Did you know the first time you were in my sights? And did you know that look that I threw at you? fashioned it's old timey you you have a knack for these melodies again i mentioned it with song uh, beneath the song where there's just okay have i heard this before it's it's in my brain already somehow and yet it's not it's fresh and that song is super fresh and it's got this great call and response vocal um that involves again michael stipe the pipes that got me through uh, ninth grade, you know? So tell me a little bit about this song and also obviously why you chose it. Well, I guess I just chose it because working with him is just one of the, you know, one of the highlights of my musical musical career for sure. And, um, and yeah, I felt like this song was different than any other song that I had ever written music musically. Um, and then definitely lyrically because he wrote most of the lyrics. Oh, he did? Well, he wrote... Um, he wrote half of them. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, I knew that he had co-written the song, and I saw that as sort of in quotes in my head. I was like, I don't know how much you just say a song was co-written by Michael Stipe because he was in the room. No. Or if, if he actually wrote some stuff. So you're saying that like some, some of these couplets were, were penned by him. Most all of them. Wow. It fits so nicely with your aesthetic that I would never have guessed that. Like, what Was that kind of mind-blowing to have him giving you these, these great words to sing? It was mind-blowing. I mean, so I'm, you know, I moved to Athens, Georgia, and then... Um, one of my greatest friends, his name is Hassan Limtuni, and he um, he is Michael Stipe's, one of Michael Stipe's best friends. So he brought us together. So we knew Michael and we became friends and, you know, we ran in the same circle for years. But of course, like, but he, that was a different Michael. There was the Michael, the superstar that, you know, I saw him perform once after we knew him. And it's like, holy shit. You know, it's like, that's not the Michael that that's not, that's, whoa, that's some, you know, that's Michael, different Michael. 
I don't know. So yeah, you know what I mean? I just like differentiated like the superstar from the guy that we were just like hanging out, going to his house and having drinks and he would come to our place. Like it was just different. Then um, I moved away and I moved to Los Angeles. Well, actually I'd gone to Omaha first and then Los Angeles. But then I had come back to work with Andy LeMaster. Um, and I'm trying to think. Okay, yeah. So I was working with him and I, I am like the queen of going into the studio with unfinished songs because I work really well under pressure. And if I wait till I have all the songs completed, I literally just like, I won't do it. So I had all the songs done and this was the only song that I didn't have done. And Michael Stipe was over at my friend Andy's house and he, we were all going to go to some party or they were going to go to a party and he's like, all right, are you going? I said, no, I can't. Like we're about to record the song and I, I have no lyrics that he was just like, play it. So I got my guitar and I was just like, did you know? Da 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 and did you know da 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 and did you know our love will never die and did you know and na 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 and you know so that's all I had is did you know da 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 our love will never die so those are the only lyrics I had but I had the melody and I had the thing and I just knew I really I liked it it was just like so different than any song I'd ever written and it felt like 1960s or 50s like. I don't know. You know, there was just something about it that just, I don't know where it came from. I know you're saying this song is distinct to you, but I think a lot of your songs have that sort of, they could be from the sort of, uh, the Brill building, the, the classic songbook. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, honestly, I'm glad to be able to say that to you because it's, it's something I've always noticed. And this song is one of those that just, it's like, it's not being ironic in any way. It's just nice. But also there is the hint, and this is another song that has a lyric that makes my, makes, uh, it catches me in my throat when I, when I sing it. Can you guess on this one what the lyric is? From this song? I can tear up at unlikely music, Maria. Maybe you didn't know this about me. Is it that uh, I'm not as fragile as I thought? Yes. Well, that's all Michael. So, I mean, I literally had no... All I had was, did you know? And then our love will never die. So that is all him. And we... Like, he he told, like, the story. So he was going to that party, and he was just like, well, you guys should come. And I said, no, I need to work on this. And he just said... So he, you know, he asked me to play it, and then I did. And he just looked... I don't know. I guess it got the wheel spinning or maybe he just liked it. I don't know. I mean, we've never, ever, ever crossed into like working together that world ever or come close to it. And then he just said, well, why don't you guys come to the party and then I'll come back over and I'll help you with the lyrics. And I was like, what? You know, I mean, I was, this is like crazy. So I said, okay. So we, Andy and I come back early and then he doesn't come. And then it's like two in the morning. And we're like, I don't think he's going to come. Like, that's fine. I was like, just the fact that he said he, he even like considered it. I was super flattered. So I was like, whatever. So we smoked, <laughs> we smoked some weed to help us go to sleep. And then of course it's like 2.30 or 2.45, like knock, knock, knock. And there he is. So I'm like, oh shit. Like now. And so that made it even more surreal. Cause here we are, you know, and he just sits down and he's just like, okay, keep playing it. And so Andy, and so Andy was sitting at the computer and I'm playing it over and over. And he's just, just spitting out lyrics. And Andy is typing them, typing them, typing them. Um, and we just did this for, I mean, the sun, until the sun came up, we were just like, I played it over and over and over. And he'd sing it too. And he was spitting out these lyrics. And then um, Andy helped me, you know, because I, I gave Andy writing credit too, because he helped me go through all the lyrics. And there were so many. And we just picked the best ones that fit. It does feel like it fits in your 
in your repertoire, you know? It's it's not it's it doesn't feel like, oh, she didn't write these lyrics. But he knows me and he knew me, you know, back then. I mean, I haven't seen him in for, you know, years and years, but back then he definitely knew what I was going through in my life too and he knew me personally, so I just feel like he probably was also writing with me in mind. So that could be also why it doesn't seem so like out of left field. Right. But I don't know. That that song, that just that night will stand out in my mind forever and ever and it was just such an honor to like share that experience with him because we had just you know we known each other for years and never worked with each other and i know it was really cool and then he, he wanted to sing on it too and i just remember like i just never want to like i don't know i remember asking him i was like do you want me to put your name on it because i don't have to because and he was just like are you kidding he's like you better put my name on it. like okay cool pretenses that we fill And he mixed, um, he didn't mix Song Beneath, but he also mixed the other song you're referring to. And it's a total battle of me being like, turn them up. I want to hear them like loud. But Andy is such a, like, he's mixing the song and he's not, you know, he's not thinking about who is who or why any voice should be louder. Like, he just wants, yeah, what's best for the song and the mix and sonically. Like, he's like balancing it out. But it was funny. Like, I kept saying, just like, it's great. Just turn him up, turn him up, turn him up. But it, I felt like after like 10 times, I was like, okay, like he's doing, he knows what he's doing. He's like a professional mixer. And also Michael Stipe is known for being one of the few lead singers to ever say, turn me down in the mix, you know? So I think that maybe it's probably appropriate. That's off the album Lady Luck. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, again, I, I guess we'll get back at that question of what an album means to you. Do you feel like these albums have distinct uh feels to you or do you sort of think that it's it's more about who you were working with at the time and just what songs were ready to go at that moment sort of i mean i because i know what was going on in my life you know like lady luck was all about a breakup and me moving to los angeles but then i also um you know mogus worked on most of that one and it's it's very produced sounding like mogus just has this you know he has his own style of production and it was like so um it definitely has his stamp on it and 
but I think it definitely, when I listen to it, I can tell that I, I had broken up with my boyfriend and had moved to a city and all by myself. And I was like getting back on my feet again. And I, I feel, I felt, I can feel that when I hear that. And then, you know, like records, like something about knowing you can tell I just had a baby and I feel like that's probably why I like, I know some people might have been annoyed by it, but I you can't I can't deny what's happening in my life. Like I that's what inspires me and, and influences everything that I do. We did kind of breeze past the album Overlook from 2011. I think you're prolific enough at this point that we can breeze past an album. But is there anything about that album or the recording of it that seems worth mentioning to you? Definitely. Like I had moved back to Alabama for the first time. Um, I had not lived there in God. Well, I don't know. Like. 13 years or something. And, um, and so I was like, I just, that was a two week period. As soon as I moved back there, just a rush of emotions being back, living in Homewood, which is where I grew up and seeing all these old friends and being with my family again, um, every day. And so I wrote it really quickly. Um, so I do think there's like this cohesiveness also with that record that it was also, there was like a, a vibe and I recorded it with Les Newbie and Daniel Ferris mixed it. And I had only Birmingham players play on it and like, including my family. And so it was just like a whole big Birmingham collaboration. Like Jason Hamrick took all the press pictures and made the video. And, um, it was just like, it was my, it was, it marks my time back in Birmingham. And I feel like I've fallen in love 100% with California. So I feel like this is where I'll be. So that's also just a special time and a special record because I feel like that was the last time that, um, that I would call Birmingham home. So let's just, I, I just want to track it for my own uh, purposes here. It was from Birmingham, Alabama to Athens, Georgia to Omaha uh -huh. to LA. And then back to Birmingham. And then back to Birmingham. And then LA. So if Overlook was kind of like your Birmingham album, it's also the album that uh, encapsulated the period during which you decided to move away again. And I noticed the next album, Something About Knowing, has some Birmingham personnel on it. Uh, Mutual friends, Daniel Ferris and, and Brad Armstrong are working on it. And in fact, you did a cover of a Brad Armstrong song that was uh, originated by his band 13 Ghosts uh, called Broken Things. So it, it seems like there's like a little bit of a Birmingham hangover on that uh, Something About Knowing album. It, do those two records together just describe a period of flux in your life? Or is, is flux just what life is? Um, Overlook was right when I moved back there and I didn't have, you know, I had no kids. Um, 
I was just getting there. I didn't know if I was gonna stay. I didn't know if I was liking it. I didn't know anything yet. I just like, I bought a house, moved in, and it was just kind of like, okay, here I am. And just this like rush of emotion or just rush of like, yeah, I guess I was just very inspired. So then I had a baby. Um, I met my husband before I had the baby. And we, um, but at this point, Brad and I both knew we were getting out of Birmingham. We were just like, no, this isn't for us. Like, we love our families. We love our friends there, but we, it's just, we're, we have to get out. The further west I go, the more at peace I feel. So it totally, it's understandable to me that you've, you found a home in California. I just love it. And I mean, I have so many friends here. And that's the thing, like, Brad um, was was my closest friend when I moved back to Birmingham. So it was so great to have Brad and Karina and his family there. And then, but then they were leaving and they told us, you know, they were leaving. Then I was just like, okay, this is like, so he's leaving and he's my closest friend there. And then um, I have, you know, I mean like probably 10 super, super close friends are out here. And I just, my friendships mean the world to me. And obviously my family does too, but I, I just needed my friends and they were here. And also like career wise, I felt like um, it was better for me to be here, like with getting, you know, like, I don't know. I just felt like, and I just love it. The same, like you said, there's something calming when I would drive West, like the, exactly the same. Like the further West I got, I just felt, I felt more at peace. You just know where you're supposed to, I don't know. I just know this is where I'm supposed to be. So it was after this that you started your own label. Tell me a little bit about that decision after putting out all your prior records on uh, Saddle Creek uh, or Network. Um, what was that like to hang out your own shingle and, and, and what motivated that choice? I mean, I have kids now and a family. And, you know, like I said, like back in the day with Azure Rates, just like I could have cared less about making a dime. You know, we'd sleep on the floor like as long as we could eat. And as long as we could like get to our show and pay for gas, like that's all. But now, like I have to think about, I mean, I have kids and they, they have to survive. <laughs> I don't know. I felt like nowadays when people don't buy records, it's just harder and harder to make money. And on an indie label scale, like I could still work with the same publicist and I could still work with the same licensing company. And my husband, Ryan, has always had a dream of putting out records and starting his own label and he's a very good businessman and so he you know I'm not organized I'm not um I could never ever do it on my own but he enjoys it and he wanted to do it so I was just like this is perfect like let's do this together like I have all the contacts you can do it so let's go for it we work so hard and then everything we make it's our money I just feel like I definitely you know I've been working with different labels for a long, long time now. So I kind of like, I have some insight on what to do. So we haven't mentioned the label name. I guess this is, this shows what a good businesswoman you are. 
But Flower Moon Records is the label, and In the Next Life was your first album that you put out yourself. Is that correct? Yes. One thing I was trying to track over your solo albums was the production credits, and it really seems like you've gone back and forth between producing it yourself or having a producer or working with a producer. Did having your own label change that at all? Like, did you feel more in control of of In the Next Life, or was it a similar sort of collaborative experience that you'd had before? Well, I I think it started when I did Overlook with Les. Um, I mean, Les is, I mean, I think he's a musical genius, and we both, like, we listened to the same music growing up. So it was really easy for me to be like, okay, Les, I want this to sound like this song, you know, or I want this, this guitar part from this song and blah, blah, blah. Like he just always knew exactly what I was talking about. But that was the first record where I had a vision. Like when I was writing the songs in my bed, um, I had all the parts in my head already. So I didn't need anyone to try to take it somewhere else. You know, it was just more like, Hey, can you get the sound? I want this like this. And can you get this? And we need to get a cello player in here to write, do this part. And I need, you know, and so, um, but we, I mean, I still say we produce that together for sure. And the same with the, in the next life. Um, I did that with my friend, Nick Freitas, but it, but he has his own sound. So definitely like, I mean, I feel like the songs, again, I, I had all the parts in my mind, but he, Nick has this like way of playing guitar and he has this way that just sounds just like him. So there was a lot of his personality in that record. And, and he came up with parts too. So like, these are just my cope. I mean, I feel like every, that record and in the next life, um, and then this last one that I, I co-produced with Lewis. I mean, it's definitely co-production, but a lot of it is just I'm. Um, they're starting to all come to me like the, with with all the parts, like as I'm writing them, and so I feel like I have to I have to see it through. God damn it! Yeah, it's so much easier when it's just like this acoustic guitar part and this vocal, and you're like, yeah, I don't know, do whatever, experiment, take it. What do you want to do? You know, like that, those were the good old days. <laughs> Now it's like there's these like all these parts, yeah, like keeping me up at night. I'm like, okay. So take me down, cause I see you when I close my eyes. Turn a corner, take me by surprise. And what doesn't work on this first try? Maybe better in the next life. And we'll laugh until the sun will rise. So the song you picked from In the Next Life was the song If Only, and uh, in addition to having another guest vocal by Connor Oberst, this song had some success when it was placed pretty prominently on an episode of the hit show This Is Us. Now, I haven't seen the show, but I know a lot of people that swear by it, and I know that it has big emotional moments in it, and um, you said earlier how you you like when arts come together. That's That's a great way for a song to be used, I think. If, 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 it's, if it's underscoring big emotions, I can also imagine that if you like the show, it would be even more exciting. Yeah, it's so cool. I'm just flattered. I'm excited. I mean, I feel like I'm like a little girl, like uh, I'm a little girl again, like Christmas time. You know, I mean, just like truly 100% like, oh my God, this is like, it's just exciting. It's great. Like, I'm just like that my, I don't know. That my, because it is, and I, well, for that show especially, I actually, I was a fan of the show before they um, contacted me to sit and so they wanted to use the song. And it, it, it was, I haven't really watched, I mean, I'm, lately I've been just, you know, HBO and Showtime shows or Netflix. And this was the first primetime television show that I've watched 
and I don't know, like decades. And I am, it just, it's all about, you know, just motherhood and, or being parents and family life. And it's a tearjerker. Like every, uh, me and Ryan, Ryan and I both would cry at the end of every episode. And so anyway, we just were getting into this show and it, and then when they said they wanted to use it, I was just so excited. And then it was at this, it was just this amazing scene so I was crying anyway at just the scene. And then to hear my music on top, I was like, I was like, this is too much. Like my whole life, I've just wanted to like make music and make art and for my music to be featured in this beautiful scene and this show that I really like and that so many of my friends like and my family likes. I don't know. It was just incredible. Well, you may feel special, but I'll have you know that a tiny piece of one of my songs was excerpted in the uh, MTV show Teen Mom 2. So uh, I think I know a little bit of what you're talking about. Yeah, it's still cool. It's just, I think, I don't know. I, I've always thought it was cool. Even back when lots of my peers thought it was cheesy to have songs, you know, they thought it was selling out to but I was always like, cause I, I mean, even little red rocket, we always had s- success for some reason in that world. Like we had songs in Dawson's Creek and Buffy, the vampire slayer and just all, you know, and so I've just always been like, hell yeah, this is exciting. That happened uh, once before with, uh, Arinda and I loved six feet under. It was like our favorite show. We would get together every Sunday and watch it. And then they used, um, rise our Azure song, and I mean, you should have seen when we got the phone call, I mean, we were just like squealing, screaming, we threw the phone down. It's like, ah! like, you know, just it's it's awesome when you already love a show. As a big fan of Teen Mom, too, I was also exhilarated. <laughs> but again, it's awesome anyway. It's just whatever. That's great. So take me down, cause I see you when I close my eyes. Turn the corner and take me back. one of my favorites and it's also one that I usually like I said I don't have extra songs like if I have a song that I finish that's it but this was the only song in my life that I started writing it for something about knowing didn't finish it and then kind of forgot about it and then when I was like decided I was ready to write a record again and I was gonna write in the next life I went back through all these old voice recordings and I was like, oh shit, like I remember this one. So this was this one long lost song. And I, I was seriously, this is the only, I've never had that experience before. But, um, and then I finished it. So I kind of like how this one like sat around for years with me. But I don't know, whatever it is, the vibe of this one, um, I don't know. I guess if someone ever said, what's your favorite song that you ever wrote, this could be one of them for whatever reason. 
The next thing I have on my timeline for you is this Christmas single that you released in 2017 with Louis Schifano called Light of the World. It bears noting Louis is not just a, another longtime collaborator of yours. He's a, he's a great musician in his own right, and he is also a very nice man who is letting you record this podcast in his place. So if you're listening, Louis, thank you for that and so much more. Maria, tell me a little bit about Light of the World. Uh, yeah, we actually wrote that song, um, <clears throat> when was that? In like 1990, 1993, and we made cassette tapes and gave it to everyone for Christmas. Fast forward to 2017, and um, I was like, let's make a Christmas song. I was like, let's re-record this one. And we couldn't find the old recording of it, so we just went, went by, uh, we went, just by our memory and we couldn't remember lots of the lyrics but it was cool so we turned it into a new song like we remembered some of the old song like the light of the world of the world tonight the light of the world of the world tonight like that was all and that that's all the original song but then we turned it into this like i added this piano part and he did this shuffle beat and then it almost had this like Charlie Brown Christmas vibe and we like added I don't know so it, it evolved into this um, this new song to your most recent album, which is just called Maria Taylor. Now, when someone releases a self-titled album that is not their debut, it always makes me think that it means something. So is Maria Taylor, the album, um, a more honest or unfiltered or direct set of songs for you? Or did you just feel lazy when it came time to name it? <laughs> um, no, I, maybe a little both. But uh, really the reason was... Um, this is the first time I ever recorded a record. Um, hold on one second. Lewis is listening to Frank Sinatra so loud in the other room. It's like, I got to text him and tell him to turn this down. <laughs> it's distracting me. Hold on. Turn down Sinatra. Turn down Sinatra. Okay. Um, <laughs> but it was the first time that I've ever recorded in my house. Turn down Sinatra is just a good policy. <laughs> 
funny. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. Yeah, we recorded this in the the midst of like you know my kids running through the room and the dog barking and having to like pay my kids off to like not talk for five minutes so I could like sing this backup part and um, I mean we did do I do have a practice space down the street and we did some of the stuff there like the drums um, and a few things but for the most part we did everything in the house so I just felt like. I don't know. I had a different kind of connection to this record because first of all, Lewis and I have been friends for so long and this is the first record we ever made together. Um, and we made it in my house and like my husband played all over it and I played on it and my son, you know, wrote a song and played on it. And I don't know, it just felt very personal in that way. Not really the subject matter. Like I don't feel like the lyrics are any more personal than any of my other songs. In fact, possibly less, but um, the record as a whole just felt very personal and I felt like it, I just couldn't think of any, naming it anything. It was just, this is me. That homegrown aspect is something that I really respond to because um, sometimes I like demos more than I like finished versions of songs. Mm -hmm. Demos will just have a life to them uh, often that, that is never replicated no matter how hard you try. I don't yeah. think the album sounds like a bunch of demos, but... Uh, because even the more stripped down tracks are are very well produced and they sound great, but um, there is a quality to this album that feels somewhat free spirited or off the cuff, like mm -hmm. like you were you were going with your 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 first best thought and just running with it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's why I didn't want to go to a studio, and I want. I mean, we just yeah, absolutely. And lots of these were like, okay, I'm going to get a keyboard and press record. And let's just like, a lot of it was that like, this is the first thing that's going to come to my head and we're going to use it. And yeah, I didn't want it to be too rehearsed and I just wanted it to be very natural. One of the real standout tracks on the album is, is oddly both one of the most produced songs, but also one of the songs that hints at that kind of demo aesthetic in that it's got all these parts on it, and that is the song Spinning Wheel, which um, has a kind of maximalist arrangement. It's just got part on top of part, and um, it's all very engaging, and it all works together really well, but it feels like someone, and again, I know this from different times where I've kind of been off to the races with a particular song, but someone who's just having fun piling on the ideas and then kind of going, wow, okay, wait, no, that actually sounds cool. But what if we do this? Yeah. It's just like, oh, now I have this idea and I have this idea. And then I send it to my brother. And I was like, put a seventies funk bass. I was like, think, uh, the Bee Gees, you know? And he's like, okay. And then he sends that back. I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah. It's just like a lot of ideas on that one. And a lot of them, I just felt like they were too good to not my, cause I mean, that, that was like, Ryan had this cool guitar part and then uh, Brad wrote a cool guitar. I mean, this was like, a lot of people had some really cool parts that we just, I just wanted to keep them all on there. It's time that the weight of your wings is gonna drag you down. And if you ever I 
it, it's a great track. It's just got so many hooks. 60s melodicism filtered through 70s singer-songwriter rock with a, a, a modern like, synth-pop gloss on it. I don't even know if that's a good description, but yeah. um, but I love that one. And, and another one that really blows me away is the song Waiting in Line, which in addition to having uh, Adam Duritz of The Counting Crows singing a really subtle, really nice harmony, um, really serving the song, but I mean, he's like Michael Stipe, he's got some some pipes that probably helped some people through puberty. And uh, uh, I mean, that's got to be an awesome gift to have that on a, on a song. Yeah. It's also got the crazy, evocative, uh, uh, heart-tugging line, I used to walk at night alone around the reservoir. Ah, love it. Um, <laughs> and it's got like a little bit after the first chorus where it throws in a Ringo drum fill and then there's like Mellotron flutes <laughs> on the second verse. I mean, Maria, you, you you know me. That's better than a sandwich. See, that's because that's our love for the Beatles. Because that those are both me. Those are I played the drum and this song. Okay, this is so funny because those drums. Uh, my kids. It's talking about okay the whole vibe of this. I guess it is some laziness. So we have my kids have a a kid drum set, and for the drums, I was just like. We'd have to go to the practice space, get my real drums. And I was like, well, let's just see what it would sound like on these kid drums. So those are actually like kid drums. But my friend Andy LeMaster mixed it. And he did get them to sound pretty beefy. So I, I feel like he, you know, he definitely added a, a lot of bass. It's almost in air quotes. It's so perfect. You know, I, I think that goes along with my theory as a as an arranger and as a listener uh, that nothing is more fun than going out of the chorus into the second verse. You've you've heard the verse, you've heard the chorus. If you're hooked, you're hooked. And now they're they're going right. back into. Hey, guess what? We're doing it again. But now the bass line is a little different. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna add some little colors. Guess what? Mellotron. Yeah. That's the part where the song is kind of coming into its own. Yeah. And that's also when I feel most secure because I'm like, it's the roller coaster. It's like, oh, we're going on that same thing again. They're probably going to go back to the chorus here, you know. And oftentimes, hey, there's a chorus that's twice as long then. And that's when you really know your songwriter has been doing their homework. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm 
that's such a great single because it has that specificity to the lyrics, but it also is the kind of song you can just plug your own experience into uh, very easily. And I think sonically, the presence of Adam Duritz is going to be a big nostalgia blast for people, even though he is not really hogging the spotlight. He's just harmonizing like a, a backup singer would do. How did that collaboration come about? It's funny too, like how you're just saying how subtle, because I was just kept saying, turn like turn it up louder. And Andy is just such a like, he, he just wants what's best for the song and he doesn't want any voice to, you know, it's like he wants the mix to be like balanced. But I did like several times, I was like, turn it up louder, turn it up louder. And then he was finally like, this is loud. But then I feel like, I feel like it's subtle too. But I think that I just trust Andy. Um, you know, he, he's always looking out for the song. Adam just started, he, well, he did it. There was a podcast once where he mentioned 1111 was one of like an album that he loved. And, um, and then he just Instagram messaged me. See, this is like, you know, I hate social media, but sometimes I love it because this, like we became friends just through Instagram. Like he messaged me and was just like, Hey, I'm Adam. Like, let's be friends. And I said, Hey, okay, sounds good. And we just, uh, messaged for a while. And then he told me about, he has this, um, he has this festival that he does where he just promotes artists that he likes and he buys merchandise from them and the the festival is free and then he puts out the merchandise so people that come to the festival for free can get cds and records from these artists for free because he's bought them from the artists and just giving them out to people that come to the show like he's just a such a generous like awesome dude who loves music and he likes to help other artists out. And um, I don't know, we became friends and it, we, I don't know, he's, it was just, it's just a very big honor to have him sing on the song. And I don't know, it's just been, I love how life just like surprises you with new friendships. So let's talk a little bit about Miley's song, which is a song written by or co-written by uh, one of your very young sons. Uh, so I guess I was just wondering how much of him is actually on this track and also kind of what does that mean to you to be able to bring him into this? And, and was that exciting for him to get to be on the album? Yeah, he just was at the piano and he just was going. You know, he was doing the step down, and I was just like, Miles, keep doing that, keep doing that. And then um, I recorded it, and then I sent it to my family. We have a family chain, Taylor Family Network, and with my brother and sister and my mom and my dad. So I sent it to them, and then my brother sends back, like 15 minutes later, this video. He put the camera up on his piano, and he does this cool rendition of it, you know, where he's like turning using chords so it's like but they're chords instead of single notes and then he sends it and so then my dad 15 minutes later he like puts the phone on his keyboard and then he records himself doing this like more dramatic like uh slower like i don't know you know his version of it and it was just like really cool so i made a little video together um, of just how that originated. So I knew right then that when I was gonna write my record, I was gonna recreate that. 
So we did, and I just had my son play that riff over and over, and we recorded it, and then I sent it, and my dad played um, a piano track and sent it back, and then my brother played a guitar track and a bass track and sent it back, and my sister sang all the oohs, and then um, Ryan played guitar on it, and Lewis played drums. It's funny, I barely played anything on this one, but uh, I was just kind of like, you know, getting it all together. Did our young composer think of the uh, finished product? Seeing his face when I played it for him, because you know he didn't—he didn't really know what was going to happen. I just said, "Get in here, like play that." And then when I played him the final mix, I mean, he just couldn't believe it. You know, his eyes were just so bright, and he, yeah, it was just like I'll never forget the way his face looked when I played it for him. So Louis Schifano, who you worked really closely with on this album. Um, he had a record back in 1999, 2000. God, that makes me feel old. But it was called The Art of Navigation, and it was under the name Regia. And it had a fantastic song on it called Something for Nothing. There's nothing in my hands. I hate to keep changing plans. But everybody's trying to get something for nothing so given your long association with Lewis and the fact that you were making this new album together, how did the two of you arrive at the decision to create a new version of the song? I love the song, and I just thought it would be cool because I'm singing the Oz on his, you know, 20 years ago, and then to switch it, and then here I could be covering his song, and then he could sing the backups and just kind of switch parts. What do you think? Is it appropriate? To go leaning on the same old wall with the same old stare What I think has been so very clear I hate to have to mention I think favorite songs of his and I wanted to just try it you know a, a little differently and make it just vibe it out a little more I'm really going for that word by the way well don't feel bad I'm about to say the word uh, demo for the 50th time in this podcast but this is one of the songs that has that spontaneous feel to me of a demo definitely especially this one um because I wasn't positive I was even going to cover this song until towards the end because he has so many great songs and I was like I, I kept 
changing my mind. And then finally I narrowed it down to this one and then we started recording it. So it really was like, um, pretty spontaneous, like all of these ideas and parts for this version of the song. But yeah, we should talk about Louis. Like he, Louis Schifano is, um, a longtime friend. Uh, he introduced me to so much of the music that has influenced me and inspired me like my whole musical life. And he, um, I've covered his songs on most of my solo records and he like pretty much like, I mean, I learned how to write songs watching him. I learned how to play drums watching him. And it was just, uh, it was really cool to come together after this many years. And he'll be honest with you too, which is another quality that, uh, that I admire. One time he just said to me, has it ever occurred to you to write a song that doesn't show your sense of humor? And I thought about it for a second and I said, has it ever occurred to you to write a song that does show your sense of humor? <laughs> and he said, touche. And we just kind of looked at each other for a second, you know. Um, it was a perfect stalemate. <laughs> That's amazing. Lewis and I, and we can fight like cats and dogs because of, I mean, he definitely is like, yeah, he will give me his opinion. And then, you know, I mean, we just, we've worked together in some in some way or another, like for so long. Well, not really though. Like we really haven't worked together. In a, actually, we took like, there was a long period of time where we did not make music together. But anyway, we're just close enough that, you know, we can, we just argued a lot, but we also, I mean, we had so much fun, but I love that we could still argue and it didn't matter. You know, like I'd be like, okay, I can't do this anymore. Just like, I've got to just, we have to stop and just scream. And then we'd start back the next day. So excited to like get back to work. Like we're just, I just feel like he's just family now. And so I do feel like sometimes we fight like brother and sister, but the beauty of our relationship is that you know that we will always be super close. We're just, we're family at this point. So I know he's involved heavily on the production side, but does Lewis play anything on the album? He definitely did play on a lot. Like Spinning Wheel, he helped me. Um, he just busted in. He wants, he wants me out of his room. <laughs> he's like, get out of here. All right, tell him we're wrapping it up. But we were talking about how great he is. Yeah, we're just talking about how great you are right now. You're kidding, and I came in and interrupted You interrupted it. Oh, now, you, now, you're, now you're portion. Yeah, well, that's over. He's yeah. not great anymore. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> no, but he, like, yeah, that song, like, he helped with the drum programming and getting it real funky and, um, and like, with Something for Nothing, that one, he, um, like, all those guitars at the end, like, the chimey guitars, like, that was all Lewis, and at the so definitely, like, yeah, I don't want to, like, make it seem like we definitely co-produced this. Well, it seems like Lewis needs some alone time with his Sinatra record, so I'm not going to keep you too much longer. I did have one question that I that I, I wanted to wrap things up with, and that is, um, I, I've mentioned several times that your music gets an emotional response from me, and I frequently kind of choke up, if not actually shed a tear, when I'm listening to your, your melodies and your, your voice and your lyrics and the way it all works together. And I was just wondering, is eliciting that type of emotional response, like, is that kind of what motivates you going for those types of feelings? And what music uh, makes you feel that way? No, yeah, I mean, that's when, when, when I am writing songs, a lot of times the ones as I'm writing, when I start to cry, like, that's when I kind of know, like, if I tear up or, and, but I was, it's so funny that you asked me this because I think it was yesterday I was going for a walk and I wanted something to make me, I was like, I used to listen to music that made me cry all the time. And that was, that's what, uh, inspired me. And that's just the kind of music I loved. 
And I was trying to remember, I was like, what are those songs that used to make me cry? Because I just wanted to go for a walk and listen to them. I don't know, like, I remember, um, like, Cat Power, like, Moon Picks, that record. Some of those songs used to make me cry. I remember, I mean, like, Leonard Cohen was always one of my favorites. I don't know that he made me cry. He more just made me feel like I needed to work harder with my lyrics. Like, he was, like, huge, a huge inspiration for me lyrically. But, oh, I know. Okay, I know. Uh, Carly Simon coming around again. I know nothing stays the same, but if you're willing to play the game. You know that one? It's coming around again. Just keep singing that. <laughs> that would always make me cry. Don't mind if I fall apart. There's more room. Oh, my God. I know I believe in love, but what else can I do? That song just... Uh, and then that... Okay, here's a new one. So I had never heard of Casey Musgraves. Oh, yeah. She's great. And then I heard that song, um, Rainbow. And I just started... I just started crying. I mean, like, real cry, where I had to, like, just take this, you know, turn the song was over and I just cried for a long time. And it's funny because I sent it to one of my girlfriends and she just wrote back and she had never heard it either. And she said, oh my God, I just ugly cried, like cried, <laughs> cried. So I don't know if it's like, but, and then I sing that song to my kids at night a lot and they- Oh my God, how do they sleep if you're ugly crying at them right before bed? <laughs> Maria, you're a, you're one of life's true musicians, and um, I've I've had a lot of fun chatting Aww. with you about your stuff. Thank this is you. this has been a long time coming, and I, I had a great time. I did too. Thank you so much for asking, and I'm so glad it worked out because it was so funny. Yeah, when we looked at our Facebook, the last time we had uh, messaged each other was a, a long time ago <laughs> about doing this. So it was the last album. Yeah. <laughs> oh so, yeah, I'm really glad this worked out. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maria. Like we always dreamed it I told you there'd be something more I promised you would see it Did you? You can find Maria's music in a lot of places, but the best is probably flowermoonrecords.com because while you're there, you can also peruse the merch and see what other artists uh, are being supported by the label. Let's let's uh, keep them going. Maria herself can be found on Twitter at Maria underscore Taylor and on Instagram at Maria Taylor 1111. As for me, I'm on Twitter at Gianni W. That's G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. And on Instagram under the same handle. Going to be back real soon with, uh, with some fun shows. So please subscribe to FYIZ on your favorite podcatcher or Spotify. And now that that's done, I guess I'll go walk alone around the reservoir. I feel like I'm waiting there for you. And that's not sad. It's beautiful. Okay, it's a little sad, but that's what makes it beautiful. Good night. And though we've never been here before, it's like I've always seen it. I told you there was something more. I was hoping I would be it. I would be it. This unspoken truth like a